This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Liz Elting is the co-founder of TransPerfect. During her tenure as co-CEO, she grew TransPerfect into the world's largest privately held provider of language services and technology solutions, with offices in more than 90 cities worldwide. She's also the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, and a businesswoman recognized for her outstanding entrepreneurship and focus on developing women into business leaders. She joins me now for a closer look. Liz, what interests me about your story is that I talk to a lot of successful women about dealing with the the old boys club, and most have advice on how to persevere and work around the problems. But for you, the first moment you realize that you appeared to be valued differently as a woman in the workplace, you said no and went out on your own. Tell us your story. Well, what happened is right after getting my MBA in finance and international business, I got a job in the proprietary trading division of a French bank, and I was doing equity arbitrage. It was very excited to use my finance and international business degree. And I went in there, and I was the only woman in the place. And that did not deter me. That was not a problem for me. But what I found in the short time I was there, whenever anything administrative needed to be done, anytime they needed coffee, supplies, at any time the phone rang. Even the phone, every time the phone rang, it was Liz, phone. That was what was yelled out. I was called on to handle those things, and, and I determined it was because I was a woman, because there were certainly other men in my situation. And that was that was a letdown. I, it was certainly not what I expected. In 1992, I thought we were beyond that. So, as a result, I decided to quit after four weeks, and uh, I gave my two weeks notice. And so, after six weeks, I left, and I decided if uh, if this is not going to be the right environment for me, I'm going to create my own. And that's what prompted me to start my company over 25 years ago. Well, how did languages and translations uh, feed into this? Okay, well, languages and anything that was international was always my passion. I was fortunate to live in three countries by the time I was 17, and then during college and after college, live in two more. So I lived in five countries. I studied as many languages as I could, which was four, during high school, and then I majored in languages in college. And then right after getting back from my internship in Venezuela, when I was 21, I started um, at what at the time was the world's largest translations company. It was about 90 people, and I found I loved the industry. Basically, it was doing language work for companies to help them do business globally, and I just fell in love with the industry. How did you raise money for it? Well, that was when I was at the other company. So I left that company and got my MBA because I figured that was going to be the way I was going to grow in my career. And then right after getting my MBA, 
um, worked in finance. That was not the environment for me. So then started TransPerfect. And as far as raising money, we really didn't do that. We grew it organically. And that was a wonderful way to grow a business because the bootstrapping helped us be very careful with cash. And we never... You know, we didn't make the mistake that often entrepreneurs make, which is running out of money. Instead, we were very careful. We made sure we could afford to do whatever we did, and we ended up being the most profitable company in the industry and and the largest. Did you actively recruit other women while you were building TransPerfect? I did. I did my best to. Um, and we had some wonderful women at the company. And then uh, I also had some wonderful women on the team who helped start a group for women leaders to help train them and mentor them. And I worked on promoting them. What do you think has contributed the most to your success? And how large a part do you think pure luck has had? Well, I mean, certainly there's a lot of luck involved. I'm a big believer in the harder you work, the luckier you get. It's something I tell my kids all the time and and people I meet. So I worked hard. When I started the company in the early years, I worked 100, 120 hours a week, and I, I think most incredibly successful and most successful people do that. So I think hard work's involved, but then I think – there's a lot of luck and timing involved, too, and meeting the right people and having those people help um, with the vision and building the the company, and, and that certainly was the case for me. So certainly a, a good amount of luck involved. You've spoken about advice your father gave to you. Was that transformative? What, what What's that oh, about? Yeah. My father has been a wonderful mentor, as has my mother, but my father gave me wonderful advice along the way and still to this day does. And one of the things he said when I was young is make sure you are never dependent on a man financially or anyone financially. And that basically made me realize, okay, I need to make sure I can take care of myself. And so from the time I was 10 years old, I had job after job. I mean, my, my parents encouraged me to work from a young age, and I think, you know, that that was incredibly helpful. I also saw my dad at his company. He he, uh, he had many, mostly women, in fact, in, in senior VP roles and, you know, in leadership roles, and uh, that made a big impact on me. And so, um, you know, my, my dad has given me wonderful advice along the way. Liz, a lot of your focus now seems to be on business advice to women. Are you frustrated with the other uh, advice for women out there? Seems to me that Sheryl Sandberg's advice to lean in would be a bit passive for you. Isn't your advice more like lean all the way out? I think Sheryl Sandberg's advice is wonderful, but yes, perhaps it works well in a in a corporate environment. And and you know there there are so many great pieces of advice she she gives. But yes, in my case, what I needed to do is create my own environment because I realized it, I wasn't going to make it happen. You know, in the original. Uh, Invest, uh, investment company that I was at. And then I also realized eventually I needed to kind of stand out and do my own thing again. Now, Hunter Thompson famously said, a job, but how would I make any money? Is that your advice for women? Start a business. Don't try to fit in the established boys clubs where the deck is already stacked against you. 
I think it. I think that is a great way to change the world. Starting your own business and creating your own environment and your own culture. And so, yes, that is a piece of advice I would give to women. And I think that is how we change the culture. And it also gives women power because economic power is social power. So absolutely, I think it's a great way to to fight the boys' club culture that we live in. In Forbes, you write, first, let's be honest about why this world is so hostile to women. I'm not sure I'd, I'd phrase it that way. I'm not sure that I agree with you that the world is hostile to women. Uh, how, how do you explain the uh, extent of that uh, extreme, using that extreme word? Right, and I understand that sounds extreme, but I think it, it has more to do with the business world, which is what I was talking about, it's hostile to women because it was structured around a male workforce backed by a particular kind of home and family structure. And the world hasn't completely changed. Um, you know, we're still in that phase. I mean, it's why over the years businesses may still be set up for men as far as I've heard stories about they are not, the tampons are not put in the ladies' room. You know, it's a small thing, but it's M of the ways in which the workplace isn't really built to accommodate women. There are so many examples of how this is so that it would take all day to cover them. It includes everything from the fact that men are more likely to hire, mentor, and promote other men, which furthers the gender imbalance of company leadership and stymies women's careers, to issues of workplace sexual harassment, and men abusing their positions of power to harm women, to pay disparity, and inadequate parental leave policies for both men and women. So sometimes it's when women are being called too aggressive or aggressive, which really just means assertive or ambitious. And, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, people assumed I was my business partner's assistant because I was the woman. So I think people are, women are frequently punished just for the simple fact of our biology because we're the ones who get pregnant and have the kids. And so then we might not be the ones in line to be promoted for that reason. Do you have any advice for women who are not entrepreneurial, who might need to join an investment firm or, or a bank? You know, I think it's important for them to have goals and to work hard to achieve them. So basically, to, to you know, not stand back and go with flow, but, but have be proactive, have goals, work hard. Don't wait around for someone to give them permission, but instead can stand out and make their mark. They should realize that no one's going to help them, but that they're strong and capable, and so they can make their goals, whatever they may be, into a reality. You know, in Forbes, you wrote about what women can do to make 2018 better. And you said, start a business. You speak about this as though you believe that women have a responsibility to other women to start businesses, to help balance the power for all women. Am I reading that right? I do think women in positions of power have a responsibility to use that power to lift other women up and create opportunities for the next generation of women. And I also think starting a business can be a crucial tool for that task. And I wholeheartedly believe in the opportunity entrepreneurship creates for women to establish their own economic power. So that said, it's something we need to be extremely aware of, that economic power is social power, and that more women starting and running successful businesses raises everyone's boat a few centimeters. So 
we advance the cause of women not just through policy and law, which is still very behind, but through practical acts of taking power on our own. Now, you say it's good for women to be bossy at work because that's how you get to be the boss. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, <laughs> that stretches a point. What I really mean by that is it's just language. There's a lot of academic literature out there breaking down the way sexist language is used to hold women back, and terms like bossy are a huge part of that. Bossy is a very gendered term that gets thrown at women almost exclusively and usually simply means a woman exercised authority in some way, which is behavior men get praised for. When a man does it, he's take charge. He's a leader. When a woman does it, She's bossy, and it comes down to men not respecting women for our authority. So that's really what I mean. Women who show ambition are often called aggressive for doing so. You know, as I mentioned before, women who are forthright and assertive are often called abrasive or difficult. And women who step up and lead are often called bossy. So, yes, I want women to be aggressive, difficult, and bossy. And I, of course, don't mean that women should literally be overly aggressive or purposely difficult to work with. I simply mean that I don't want women to stymie their ambition, let others push them around, silence their voices, or suppress their leadership potential. I want women to be shameless in getting and using every advantage at their disposal. That means we need to be able to weather the comments and call out when we're being penalized for behavior our male colleagues are being rewarded for. Liz, in terms of your own career, what would you characterize as the principal reason you made it in such a competitive environment? I think hard work is incredibly important, um, persistent, and then finding and surrounding myself with great people um, was absolutely critical for almost the entire time, because that's really where what caused the our company to become the largest company in our industry. And it was from, as I said, finding them, recruiting them, hiring them, developing them, retaining them, and then involving them in both the vision for the company and the growth and aligning incentives so that they were incredibly motivated to build the company as I was. Um, I guess one last piece would be timing. I think the timing was very good. Um, as far as when I had the idea to start our company, because it was really the beginning of the globalization of business. And now, you know, the timing is good for many other things, but I think that that was one other big factor that was very helpful. Are there any men in senior positions at the company? My co-CEO and co-founder is a man, and, and I, I actually just sold my half of the company. Lately, there have been stories about how Wall Street wants more female traders. Women generally account for only less than 15% of trading roles. Is this a business that you think would make sense for women? And if so, how can they best succeed there? I don't have a, a great amount of experience as a Wall Street trader. And I, I got out of Wall Street very quickly when I realized how much of a boys club it was. But I think the same advice that I've been giving here 
would apply, which is find opportunities and create them. Push as hard as you can and be the best there is at what you do. It's the only way to get ahead when you're fighting an uphill battle and overcoming obstacles your competitors don't have. I also do believe, as I deal more with Wall Street in my endeavors, even though I don't work um, on Wall Street, I see there are more women than there were, and I see them supporting other women, and I think that's very helpful, and I think we all, we women need to continue to bond together and support each other, and that will help take us to, you know, where where we need to be at least 50%, in 50% of the leadership roles, and uh, I think that certainly applies to Wall Street as well. Now, you've written that you think there are dangerously few women on boards. Why do you use the word dangerously? Because when women aren't in leadership roles, women's needs aren't being met. Women are less able to thrive and succeed, and that means being mentored, hired, and promoted in fewer numbers. And as we've seen, toxic environments and sexual harassment are often allowed to go unchecked, things that all ultimately hurt not just women but the company itself. And it's also worth pointing out that companies with more women in leadership roles actually perform better than those with fewer. Let's be frank here. Most people are women. Most of the humans who've ever existed or ever will exist are women. 51% of the population is women. But women are shut out of leadership, which perpetuates the imbalance and adversely affects everyone involved. It ultimately impacts company culture, company policy, and major company decisions. A lack of women, as well as a lack of any diversity on a board, means fewer perspectives and often is a recipe for poor decision-making and missteps. That changes when women are able to step up and take power across every sector. Sophie Bellin, chairwoman of the board of Sodesco, supports quotas for the number of women on boards because she's a strong believer in what gets measured gets done. Do you think she has a point? What do you think about quotas? I 100% agree with her. Quotas are valuable, and I think the argument against them is ridiculous. It doesn't reduce quality or merit. It just makes you look in places you wouldn't otherwise have, and it addresses the current imbalance and deals with the reality of cultural biases, because that's the whole argument against them. If we have quotas, unqualified people will be admitted. That's saying, I don't think women or minorities are qualified, which is ridiculous. Every group of people has produced stellar engineers and executives and artists and everything else. The entire argument against quotas is little more than distaste for what we've turned into a dirty word, coupled with a vision of meritocracy that assumes only white men have merit. We wouldn't need quotas if we were working on an even playing field, but the reality is we're not. We're up against deeply ingrained social biases and systemic barriers that make the path to success more arduous for marginalized groups. Liz, here are the latest statistics for investment capital. Female-founded companies comprised 2% of all venture capital deals last year. Only 30% of female-owned businesses were able to get business loans from their banks. Are women being basically shut out of entrepreneurism? Yes, and I've written about this extensively. It comes down to the same issue I keep pointing to. Systemic sexism is real and drags women down at every level by preventing us from gaining access to the tools that success requires. You can't start a business without cash on hand. And where are you going to get that cash if women are being denied loans and venture capital? Now, the pay gap has actually been increasing. And women CEOs still get paid a fraction of what male counterparts earn. Is this another reason you want women to consider their own business? 
Yes, it is. And, and the pay gap is one small part of the systemic problems that hold women back, which boil down to this. Economic power is social power. And when women aren't economically independent or economically powerful, it means we are subject to the whims of those who are. And as a class, that's overwhelmingly men. That means we need to bridge these gaps and establish equity wherever possible, because you need every little brick if you want to build something that will last. The pay gap is really just a reflection of how wide the overall disparity of power is right now. And it's an easy benchmark to see how far we still need to go for true equity. Now you've written about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in the Rizzo case that it is a violation of the Equal Pay Act to consider a new employee's prior compensation when determining their starting salary. Why is this decision so important for women as opposed to men, and do you think it will be challenged? Well, I did cover this topic. I didn't actually write about Rizzo. I interviewed Sherry Colvis, a partner in the law firm of Nelson Mullins, Riley, and Scarborough, and an expert on employer compliance with civil rights laws, including claims over pay disparity and gender discrimination. I myself am not an expert on this case, so I'll limit how much I speak to it. That said, by uncoupling future compensation from previous compensation, you're opening the door for women to earn more. It helps break a pattern where smaller salaries perpetuate from employer to employer just because a woman was overpaid, underpaid at her first job, which means there's more opportunities for women to adequately negotiate and earn more. And I expect, as far as Rizzo goes, that we'll see earnings for women begin to rise. You know, it's kind of interesting that there are no women among the high-profile white-collar criminals uh, in the mode of Madoff or... Cohn or Jeffrey Skilling and Enron. Is that just pure chance at this point? There are a few reasons. I mean, part of it is lack of opportunity for, for women in that, you know, there are fewer women in positions of power, so of course fewer women who will abuse that power, and likely a lack of that pervasive sense of invincibility that drives most white-collar criminals and makes them feel as if they can get away with their crimes. Um, I think women's personalities often are not to feel like they are, you know, above the law, invincible, they can make the rules. I, I think I haven't seen that nature as much in them as people, but, but I also think there's the element of they're not in a position to begin with of, you know, of being in the highest, having the highest authority in, in, in the environment that they're in. I think that's more the case. I would agree with you on that. GM appointed a woman as its new chief financial officer, becoming the largest company in the world, headed by both a woman CFO and CEO. That's a pretty encouraging sign, don't you think? Absolutely. Every step, every new milestone is encouraging. But this is one job at one company, or, or two jobs. That said, it does send a strong message to young women with similar ambitions. Seeing what other women have accomplished can be a real source of inspiration and encouragement. Now, on the other hand, the number of women CEOs at Fortune 500 companies dropped by more than a quarter, and only 23 of them have a woman as CEO. This number has slowly climbed over the years to just around 5%. That's pretty discouraging. And Why do you think that is? I wish I knew. It does feel like a lot of progress has been undone, and I can't identify every factor that fed into that. 
I think there's a degree to which it's backlash against the gains that women have made. But I suspect it's not only that. I mean, I look at failures like Yahoo, and I wonder if the same logic is at play that makes movie executives think movies with women, women stars can't perform. A movie with a male lead fails, and they go, oh, I guess it was marketed badly. A movie with a female lead fails, and they go, people don't want to watch movies about women. I wonder if the same line of thinking is active here. In Obama's first year, 40% of his judicial nominees were women. Now, just 25% of Trump's district court nominees and 19% of his circuit court nominees are women. Are you concerned that women seem to be losing ground, or is this just a temporary step back after so much progress? I'm not going to predict the future, but yes, it is absolutely a step back. Honestly, there's a huge cultural backlash against the gains of feminism, and Trumpism is one major manifestation of that. As much progress as we've made, one thing is perhaps clearer now than ever. Blatant and unmitigated misogyny still exists in our society, and that's the real issue we'll have to overcome to achieve and maintain equality. There's often an assumption that if a woman woman gets ahead, she got special treatment, which means there are still many people who are simply much less likely to select women for important positions because their decision-making starts with the assumption that men are more capable. I mean, there are actually still people in this country who believe that married women shouldn't work or that women shouldn't have the right to vote. That kind of radical misogyny is going to take work to eliminate. And this is why I'm so single-mindedly focused on women making their own power through business. Unless we build power from the ground up, we can't confront this. Women have to be a force unto ourselves. She started a business with a friend in an NYU dorm room with no outside funding, and TransPerfect was born. Today, it's one of the world's largest translation firms, valued at over $1 billion. She's also the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, where she advocates for women's leadership and equality in the workplace. Liz, thanks for joining us. By the way, if any of you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour.